Hello and welcome to DeFi 2.71 podcast. My name is Seraphim and today we're going to chat with Joe Andrews from Aztec, which is a revolutionary privacy solution on Ethereum. We're going to be discussing what exactly is Aztec, the future of rollups, privacy on Ethereum and much more. Stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Euler Finance. Euler is a decentralized lending platform built on Ethereum, allowing you to lend and borrow any ERC20 token that trades on Uniswap V3. So welcome to the podcast, Joe. It's good to have you here. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, good to be doing doing one of these live instead of uh, in over the internet in COVID times. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good to see the whole studio. Thanks I hate, for having me. I hate the internet ones. I just really <laughs> bloody hate them. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, tell perhaps you can tell the audience about your background and how exactly did you get into crypto? Should be a good start. Yeah, it's probably not conventional. Um, so. Where do I go back to? Um, this, this is actually a funny anecdote, but um, I I went to university in London, um, kind of got into coding and um, the first wave of like, I guess, startup interest in back in 2013, 2014. And I was like, okay, I need to be in San Francisco. So I went out to San Francisco, found an internship in uh, some startup and uh, they were like a car review startup um, and ended up kind of doing that for a bit. Uh, and then, Long story short, stayed in San Francisco um, and started a food tech company, um, completely different to crypto. Um, but that was kind of uh, me being in America. And whilst I was in San Francisco, I, I lived in this like tech uh, kind of frat house is probably the only way to describe it. It was um, one of these kind of tech community houses. Um, and it was on 6th Street in San Francisco in the Tenderloin, which is not the nicest place. Um, and... Vitalik actually um, came by with Gavin Wood. Um, I think it must have been on the original, like Ethereum, like roadshow, like mm. pre, pre, like the ICO. ICO, yeah. And he was trying to get people to kind of download the client and send him money. And like the house was not very nice, and like uh, <laughs> it wasn't in a great part of San Francisco. And the whole team kind of looked a bit homeless. Um, so obviously, I didn't partake. Um, but if I had, I would be very wealthy um, so that's when I kind of first like heard about Ethereum and it kind of the people in that house kind of were interested in crypto at the time and it kind of like piqued my interest a little bit but I, I went on a slightly different path uh, doing like food tech and then food tech t- turned out to be a terrible business model so um, that company imploded in 2017 and I moved back to the UK and did Entrepreneur First, which is like a accelerator. Um, started out of London, um, a bit like the Y Combinator of Europe. And I met, um, at the time, uh, three other co-founders. So Zach, uh, Tom, and Arno. Um, and we kind of uh, set out to create a company called Credit Mint. Actually, Tom and Zach previously had, had met before Entrepreneur First to build this uh, company called Credit Mint. And Tom had a background in kind of syndicated loans, um, and Zach was kind of uh, had tinkered with crypto and had like the the maths and the kind of engineering background. So um, that was kind of how I got into crypto, and and I met them on this program, and I was like, okay, I want to kind of change the scenery. Um, I've always kind of like been on the edge of crypto. It's kind of time to take the plunge, uh, and this was kind of 2017. So we kind of all set out to start creating. At the time, what we thought was a um, disruption to uh, kind of syndicated debt, uh, like the private debt market. Uh, but we can get into that in a minute. So that's how kind of 
my road into crypto, which is a bit different to most, I think. <laughs> yeah, completely different, actually. Like, <laughs> yeah. people usually, like, I used to do, like, standard tech or traditional finance, usually. Yeah, it's a bit it's different. Starting the full tech, man. <laughs> yeah. It's actually quite, kind of funny. Our, our new head of uh, growth, um, John Wu, also did food tech and then made his way into crypto. So it's, mm. I'm not the only one who's come through this path. It's been mm. a good catchment, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, I guess we, we set out on this road to put, um, we use Ethereum as a neutral settlement layer for uh, syndicated debt because in the syndicated debt world, there's lots of untrusted parties who don't trust each other mm-hmm. and having a kind of neutral clearinghouse uh, is lacking from the market um so we uh yeah we, we set out to kind of disrupt that industry and realize that quite quickly blockchains were public mm-hmm. and you need privacy for for that so uh that's kind of how aztec was born actually great you mentioned that because i was about to ask like why do you think privacy is important in crypto specifically so uh syndicated debt or just generally, there's a reason there's dark pools in financial markets. You just don't want to other people to know what your position you've got or whatever, you know. Um, apart from that, what else do you think is very important in terms of, I mean, why we need privacy in crypto? Yeah, I think it's kind of, there's two main reasons. And one is a bit more simplistic and I think just worth flagging because a lot of people in crypto even know this point and just turn a blind eye or they actually aren't aware of this. And it depends how long you've been in crypto and how whether you're kind of just a new user or you've been in for a while. But blockchains are public. Like in order for a blockchain to work, um, every node has to verify the state of every transaction and everyone needs to be able to see everything. So it's this great innovation, um, but all of the data passing through it is public and that's how you get this kind of great uh, benefit of distributed consensus. You can remove a middleman by effectively exposing data to everyone. Um, And that's not how most of the financial ecosystem works. So in the Web2 world, um, our privacy is not great as it is, but we we have far better privacy than on most blockchains today because um, I can't see your bank account. You can't see my bank account. um, And that's kind of a status quo that most people um, depend on for personal security or or for business, I guess. so I guess that's the main first point is that uh, blockchains need to get to a point where the privacy is as good as the Web2 alternatives to truly be competitive. Um, otherwise, you're basically giving up um, a large amount of personal data beyond what the Facebook, Amazons and Googles already have uh, on you um, in order to be in control of your own assets and kind of remove middlemen. Mm-hmm. So. Me personally, I uh, think that privacy is kind of the last missing link to disrupt some of these um, Web2 financial ecosystems. And that, that's one reason. And then I think given the way that blockchains work, um, it's a decentralizing force. So we don't have to stop there. So like the kind of the, the goal is to kind of equal the privacy you get uh, in Web2. But because now... Uh, users are kind of custodians of their own funds. It also means they're custodians of their own data. So it's up to users to actually control who sees what. Um, and privacy on a blockchain can enable that. We're not there yet, but those are kind of the the things I think are important about adding privacy to public blockchains. Mm. So there were quite a few privacy solutions in crypto already, like Monero, Zcash, uh, on a smart contract basis, smart net, uh, secret network, there's Tornado Cash. What do you think? I mean, they all 
have done great things. Obviously, yep. they've furthered the um, kind of the cause. W- what issues do you think they have not addressed yet? What is lacking? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, they're all a bit different. So, if we start at kind of like the the older kind of uh, Moneros and and Zcashers, um, I think the the reason that they've had like reasonable success, but the reason they don't have uh, major adoption is for, for two reasons, I think, or mainstream adoption, I should say. Um, one is uh, kind of they're built purely for privacy um, and privacy is not the product. Privacy is something you need when you have like financial activity. So um, if we're just paying each other here, uh, no one else is in the room, we don't really need privacy. Like, um, unless we're trying to hide stuff from each other. But if there's 100 other people in the room, um, we may want privacy so people don't kind of snoop on our transactions. Or if we're a business, they don't see uh, kind of the rates that I'm getting compared to someone else. So I think the first part is um, purely around uh, there isn't financial activity happening on those blockchains. So the need for privacy is one that's born out of kind of maybe an academic need or a kind of pure personal need, uh, but it's like siloed from the rest of the financial ecosystem. Um, And I think the reason for that is because there's no programmability on those two specific chains. So on Zcash and uh, Monero, like it's payments. Um, There's no kind of smart contract language uh, as of yet. I think Zcash are working on it. But um, yeah, the, the kind of the lack of programmability means that there isn't this hub of innovation that uh, we both know as DeFi um, that mandates privacy because it's now created a, like a, a interconnected web of like individuals transacting and creating a financial ecosystem. And that's where privacy becomes uh, important. And then you kind of look at Ethereum and some of the other um, projects you mentioned, and I think they've made like incredible strides to trying to solve uh, the privacy. Um, and Tornado Cash is one of the kind of earliest examples of this. It's had great success on adding privacy on layer one Ethereum. With Tornado Cash, I think even though they've had great success, um, it's not privacy by default. So it's a choice for certain users, which means that kind of the rest of the ecosystem um, is still without privacy. And that actually leaks a lot of data because if I transact with someone who doesn't have privacy, um, you can start to build up patterns and um, use advanced machine learning techniques to kind of back out uh, the transaction graph of Tornado Cash. So I personally believe that privacy needs to be kind of uh, not opt-in, but by default. And um, the reason that hasn't really taken off with something like Tornado Cash is because there are UX considerations. It's really expensive in terms of gas. um, And there's certain kind of settlement uh, or uh, time delays you need to apply to actually get the privacy on, on layer one. And uh, for me, I think that is like not a user experience that mainstream wallets can adopt yet. Mm. So they haven't. And that's why it's always on the fringe um, and not built into MetaMask or Rainbow, for example. I suppose that's what you see Tornado Cash. Well, it's fantastic, obviously, and pioneers the idea of privacy. It's like you see Tornado Cash mostly involved in some Oracle manipulations and a bunch of things that mean that users, normal users would not use, I suppose, because it's too expensive, as you say. Um, so, but before we get into kind of privacy, that we already started doing it, but let's talk a bit about Aztec. Uh, what exactly do you guys uh, do? What was the journey like? Just tell us about what you guys have been up to. Yeah, so 
Uh, I think I, I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, but um, so Aztec started um, from Entrepreneur First, um, and the company's original plan was to uh, put syndicated debt on Ethereum, and we were kind of using Ethereum as a disruption tool for these kind of mid-market debt funds who currently had to originate debt uh, at large um, banks at the trading desks, and the debt could only trade at that bank's trading desk and was kind of... um, it was an inefficient market with with a lot of information asymmetry, and so we set out on this on this journey, um, and quite quickly realised that uh, debt funds wouldn't go near public Ethereum if all of their kind of holdings uh, trades were just broadcast uh, on a public ledger. Uh, so we realised we needed privacy, and uh, Zach, our CTO at the time, but CEO now, um, set out to kind of um, I guess invent uh, what became the Aztec Protocol. Um, uh, or the first version of it. And Zach's got a background in particle physics um, and a PhD in it. So he understood the maths really well uh, that kind of is behind a lot of these privacy techniques, um, and in particular, um, elliptic curve cryptography and and ZK SNARKs. And he was able to kind of put together uh, the first version of Aztec, um, which we no longer use, but that was kind of uh, the point at which we realized uh, CreditMint was not the, the big prize here, like we were an infrastructure company, we needed to pivot to kind of provide privacy infrastructure for other people to kind of realize the vision of kind of credit mint uh, down the road. So that's kind of how Aztec came about. Um, fast forward a few years and, and we realized that the original version of our privacy protocol was way too expensive. It was kind of opt-in, as I, as I said, a bit like Tornado Cash. Um, and it also provided confidentiality, not anonymity, which is actually a much stronger form of privacy um, on, in a blockchain case anyway. So we um, set out to kind of re-architect it. Um, and uh, Zach met Ariel Gabazon, who is a former cryptographer from Zcash, actually. And they invented a new form of ZK snark called Plonk, mm-hmm. which is a funny name, but... Um, Uh, It's become pretty much widespread in the industry, um, used by kind of a lot of the major teams and partly because it's just, I think, the fastest ZK snark that exists or universal ZK snark, I should say. And we can get into that in a minute. But um, at Aztec, we build uh, privacy infrastructure um, with the view of kind of making cheap private transactions mainstream and something that a developer can easily add into their DAP with kind of zero friction cost for the end user. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's get into the underlying technology. You mentioned Plonk. Could you explain Plonk to, uh, well, as not, if I'm four year, <laughs> a four-year-old? You know? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough question. Um, we get a five-year-old. Okay. Let's make it easy. <laughs> um, okay, so I usually think about it as what, what is the purpose of Plonk? So um, if we back up a second and we kind of imagine the world where we have public transactions going um, across a blockchain. Um, and we have blockchain nodes that are producing blocks and they're validating uh, the transactions. They can perform kind of simple maths that like four-year-old or five-year-old can understand, like checking the balance before a transaction and after a transaction and ensuring that there's no double spends and kind of the rules of the blockchain have been followed. If you start to kind of encrypt data and add privacy, you can no longer do that um, because I, if I just encrypt some data and put it in a transaction, you can no longer test anything about that data. So this is where kind of the um, quite unique 
at the time it's becoming very much more popular now but quite unique branch of cryptography um came about uh, or came in into widespread attention which is zk snarks um so what zk snarks uh, enable you to do is um have a proof of the computation um and have that be validated by a third party and also um hide information um so you can kind of in this proof effectively prove that you've validated um the correct running of, of a program but without actually uh revealing all the information that you need for a third party to do that mm-hmm. so uh there's a lot of analogies about kind of um people going through caves or um my favorite one is the the where's wally analogy um we have a nice kind of black table tablecloth here or tabletop but um imagine there was like a where's wally board underneath and i um i cut out uh, a shape of wally um kind of in this uh, black tablecloth and the, the where's wally board was underneath if i wanted to prove to you where wally i knew where i knew where wally was without showing you where he was i could kind of move this kind of uh, black cloth around and as, if you couldn't see the edges you kind of know that i knew where he was but you still wouldn't be able to find him yourself right uh, which is kind of like a simple um i guess zeke snark analogy um and what what these enable is you to kind of effectively run uh, programs um, or create a program, uh, then create a proof that the program has been run correctly. So that program can be a transaction. Um, so, uh, basically, subtract from my balance, add to your balance, mm-hmm. destroy my notes, give to your notes. And you create a proof that that's been run correctly. Uh, and instead of submitting the transaction with all the public data on the blockchain, you send the proof to the blockchain. Uh, and the proof hides this information and gives you a form of privacy. And to go back to the original question, um, what Plonk is and why Plonk was invented, um, ZK Snarks uh, are very, very computationally intensive. So uh, I think there's a stat that I think uh, a computation is about a billion times more complex in a ZK Snark. So it's like, it's very, very computationally intensive to kind of uh, run like if you compare running a computation to proving running that you've run a, a computation correctly, um, it's like a like several orders of magnitude um, slowdown in, in performance. And uh, they also had this other property where um, the historical ZK snarks, um, they needed a trusted setup to be run per uh, like program effectively. Mm-hmm. And a trusted setup, you may be familiar with the Zcash kind of setup ceremony um is a it's basically a a large group of people generates uh, a string of random numbers and uh, the goal of this is to kind of create a common reference string and if only one person kind of acts honestly and destroys this toxic piece of information you can trust the setup ceremony and uh, no one no one will be able to kind of unencrypt the, the proofs for the program so before Plonk, um, every program, every tiny modification to a program um, would require a new trusted setup ceremony. Um, and when kind of uh, Zach and Ariel met at a conference, there had been some previous papers, one called Sonic, um, uh, that kind of p- proposed a universal uh, ZK snark. Um, and universal basically means you could do a setup ceremony once and then... Uh, 
kind of reuse those points as inputs for all future programs you could write with that circuit. So Planck was kind of um, some iterations on some of those papers, and it presented some massive speed ups in uh, prover time, um, and also kept that universal um, uh, universal nature. So you didn't need to regenerate uh, these setup parameters for every single program uh, mm-hmm. that you wanted to write. So that was invented, I think, in 2019, 2020. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, for the first time, enabled you to kind of write these quite complex programs um, that could be actual kind of user transactions and submit them to a blockchain for validation. And the most important part, I guess, is that Plonk was fast enough that you could construct the proofs for these programs on a client device. It's like a mobile mm-hmm. phone or in a web browser. Because in order to give end-to-end encryption, um, you can't trust third-party middlemen. This has to happen uh, local to a user's device. So let's dissect this a bit. Um, first of all, you said that computational power required for ZK Snarks is huge. Right? Yeah. But to prove a transaction is true, you don't need a billion. That, that's the whole idea. You don't need so much uh, capacity to do so, right? Yeah. Um, so you also said, um, I assume I'm a five-year-old, so you also said it's important that everybody is able to kind of validate things. Otherwise, if you rely on the third party, it becomes sort of centralized and not private, right? Um, is the idea then that the validation is done by anyone, whereas the actual kind of uh, is block creation equivalent on Aztec, uh, done by some more powerful centralized counterparties that are able to do those computations, right? Is, am I getting this right? I think a better way to think about it is like, so if, uh, when we put this into like an actual like uh, L2 transaction network, there's a few more kind of steps. Um, but I guess the, the fundamental like um, like Plonk building block enables enabled you to kind of take, uh, usually an Ethereum transaction is a signature um, over some data that you send to uh, a node and the node checks the signature and kind of, decrements or increments the balance with a kind of network that's trying to be privacy preserving um, you can no longer send a signature and public data you need to actually fully run a transaction in the browser that says I'm I have 10 units I want to give you two so I'm going to subtract two from my my balance and I'm going to add two to your balance here's a signature that proves I own 10 uh, you write that all in a program and then instead of sending that out for kind of uh, someone else to, to validate, you create a proof that you've done that correctly. Uh-huh. So you now send that proof to, um, uh, like, this is kind of, uh, if you just have that stage, it's kind of what Tornado Cache does. So mm-hmm. they take that proof and they validate it on Ethereum um, in, in simple words. It's incredibly expensive to validate it, like nearly a million gas. Um, and... Uh, Yes, that's kind of like a single unit of transaction, but you need that to happen on the client side to give you the privacy. What Aztec then does is it kind of takes Plonk and the speed of Plonk to go a step further, and it says, okay, well, instead of sending uh, that individual transaction to um, an Ethereum miner, I'm going to send it to an Aztec node. And this is maybe what you were touching on with like, there's some centralization here. Um, but Aztec nodes completely trustless, but they take 
um, user transactions. If they can't see what's happening in a user transaction, but mm-hmm. you can just see, is it is it a valid transaction or is it not? If it's valid, they can aggregate or roll it up. Um, this is where the word roll up kind of comes from. Uh, roll it up with a group of other transactions. Mm-hmm. And then they create like a meta transaction that's proving the correctness of, say, 100 transactions rather than one transaction. So they then use like a much more complicated uh, ZK Snark program to say, okay, I've checked that all these um, 100 Aztec transactions are correct, um, and you use a technique called recursion to do that. Uh, and you send that giant proof um, up to Ethereum for validation. And if that one proof is now valid, it validates the correctness of all 100 uh, individual and Aztec transactions that were inside that. So that's kind of created by an Aztec node. Um, okay, I, see, I start to see it. All right. But what about the Aztec node itself? Um, how powerful does it have to be then to do that, all that stuff? It's a, it's a good question. So um, you can run our rollup server on like a consumer grade hardware. So like normal MacBooks, um, it's just a bit slow. Um, the one we run in production, um, it's about a 32 core AWS machine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the reason we use that is just because we, we've been kind of growing the team quite fast and we haven't spent a lot of time um, paralyzing um, the prover. Like a, a better design um, would be instead of rolling up kind of... Uh, so our current system takes groups of 28 transactions, um, creates a proof for those. And does that four times. So it's kind of quite computation intensive. The, the circuits are quite big. Um, like the longer term decentralized model uh, is a two by two structure. So you validate two transactions uh, are valid in a proof. Uh, and then a bit like a Merkle tree, you kind of have lots of two by two proofs that are validated. Uh, and those two by two proofs can be run on kind of consumer grade mm-hmm. hardware and hopefully eventually phones uh, once the proving system is fast enough. But at the moment, it, it is run on a kind of Fairly beefy, but like not custom AWS mm-hmm. machine. So Plonk essentially what it is able to achieve, even though these transactions are very difficult to kind of compute and put together, it's still better than the current kind of standard ZK snarks. Is that? Yeah, like orders of magnitude better. Right. Like in terms of speed, like you wouldn't be able to do some of this recursion um, with uh, kind of standard R1CS snarks uh, efficiently. Okay. Um, I see. And the validation itself, just so I understand, get this, get this right. That happens though on Ethereum then of this of these proofs. The ultimate validation, like like effectively, what you're doing is you're you're delaying validation. So I I create a proof as a as a user um, that I could validate on Ethereum, mm-hmm. um, but instead I give it to a rollup node, and instead of them validating it as one proof on Ethereum, they validate it in a program, right. create a proof that they've validated it in the program, send that up to Ethereum. So you're effectively you have levels of validation and as long as it's been validated in a proof somewhere, if the top level proof on Ethereum is valid, mm-hmm. then it means that everything inside it is valid. Um, oh. So yeah. Like, uh, just wondering, just as a mental exercise, under which circumstances could a Aztec node um, want to submit wrong transactions uh, or incorrect transactions? Like what's the, it could, or what's the economic incentive preventing them from wanting to do that? Uh, so, so this is kind of, um, I guess, validated by cryptography. So you can never submit an incorrect transaction. Um, you 
you can only submit valid transactions. So the only thing a node can do is um, censor transactions um, and, and not provide liveness. So uh, it can basically look at a transaction pool and say, I can't see what's happening in these transactions, but I'm just going to take out these five and not put them in a block. Um, so when there's kind of uh, a fairly centralized system, um, there's kind of a liveness risk, but there's never a kind of double spend or kind of the node misbehaving risk because it's all validated by cryptography. Because um, right, you can easily prove that that's false just by... It just wouldn't validate when it got to Ethereum because Ethereum's okay. like a, running a validation uh, engine. It would kind of... There's only one answer and it's the correct answer. Nice. And, and otherwise it fails. Um, so it would fail at the Ethereum level and that block would be invalid yeah. and the system would basically just still be at the previous state. Actually, let's talk first about the features of asset, like ZK money, mm -hmm. I think. Could you tell us more about what exactly that is? Yeah, so the current um, Aztec network has been live since March um, and it's done about maybe $55, $60 million of kind of payments um, despite having a pretty small cap for a large part of that. And what the network enables uh, is private sends between uh, like parties on the network and then kind of anonymous withdrawals back to uh, layer one. And all of that's available for RSDK. And we've built ZK Money as a way to kind of showcase the functionalities of the SDK. At the moment, it's the main kind of source of transactions. Um, it's got a large number of users. Uh, and that's kind of like the purpose of ZK Money, uh, to kind of show developers what's possible, show them that the user experience is now kind of much more like a Venmo-style experience than like a traditional blockchain uh, wallet from a couple of years ago. Um, what we've been working on for the last year is uh, an improvement to the network we're calling Aztec Connect. Uh, and that lets you kind of take assets on the L2 and send them to any layer one smart contract. Uh, so you can in interact with DeFi basically. So we call that Aztec Connect. Uh, and there's a, a bridge interface that we're kind of working with lots of kind of leading protocols and developers in their community to kind of build these bridges. Uh, to Aztec. And at a high level, we kind of model DeFi as an asynchronous token swap with two tokens in and two tokens out. So if you take a Uniswap example, because it's probably the simplest one to, to imagine, if I've got um, ETH on Aztec, we call that ZK ETH um, or shielded ETH. I can take my ZK ETH, send it to the Uniswap bridge uh, and get ZK DAI back in return. Uh, and all of that kind of... Uh, from an on-chain perspective, it just looks like the Aztec rollup has interacted with Uniswap. Mm -hmm. So you have no idea which users on Aztec have done that. Uh, and we can actually go a step further um, and say, if there are other users doing the transaction at the same time, we'll batch them together and everyone, spits, everyone splits the uh, L1 uh, gas fee for Uniswap. So you end up getting, with a, getting about a 10 to 30 times kind of gas savings and privacy for free, basically. Right. So... What exactly is private and what exactly is public in Aztec? Like, I think the username is something that is kind of public. Is that it or there's other things? Uh, yeah, so you can see what, what's public and private. Hmm, that's a good, good question. So Aztec kind of manifests itself as a contract on layer one Ethereum, the Aztec roll-up contract. You can see 
every address that's interacted with that, every, every address that's deposited to that. Um, and that's kind of the source of capital inside Aztec at the moment. Um, and we kind of call that our, like, our privacy set. That's, that's everyone who could have put capital into the system. Once the capital is inside the system, it's owned by, uh, similar to Ethereum, a public-private key pair. Um, uh, but we actually have an alias system, which is kind of a shortcut to look up someone's public-private key. Um, we need this because uh, for encrypted transactions, I can't. it's not just enough to know where to send the funds. It, you need to know how to encrypt the funds. Because if I send you, if I have a private trans, private balance myself, but I send you funds and I make them public, everyone can see them. So uh, the alias is basically a way for people to type Joe and find out how I want my funds encrypted so I can receive them. So the alias is effectively public, but you can't glean any kind of like identifying information from it other than the name. And that's someone you already know. Right. Um, so you can't see their balance. You can't see uh, their transactions. You can't even see when they're transacting. When you say that people need to know how to encrypt that data, so there's different options, I assume, like for encryption of data within Aztec? Uh, at the moment, there's not, but there is something we're working on, um, kind of different um, uh, kind of encryption algorithms. But at the moment, it's kind of one encryption algorithm. Uh, but we need to know your public key. Um, we need to know kind of, uh, yeah, just uh, kind of, we don't want to pass around large hexadecimal strings. Like people pay each other by name or by kind of more human readable forms. And uh, we just built that into the system because, uh, yeah, I think the Aztec uh, public keys are slightly different to Ethereum ones and to avoid confusion. It's actually quite brilliant. I mean, we'll get into NFTs later, but a big problem is with some NFT holders is that, let's say you go to an event and you're supposed to show your NFT. And what if you don't want to show your entire collection or something? I don't know. Like, or people to dox you to find out what else is in your wallet, right? Yep. Like, this is a solution to sort of show what you've got because you want out of your own volition without revealing everything else in, in the wallet, I suppose. Yeah, it's a way to kind of say, I have this. Uh, sorry, I have this account. Um, you can pay me here, and um, yeah, I guess you're just in control of what's hidden inside that wallet, um, as opposed to the current status quo, which is if I look up your Ethereum address or your .eth domain, I can see everything you've done on DeFi and everything you're going to do, which is kind of something that people wait, 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 repeat that was that. <laughs> so like people always think like, oh, if I um, uh, the privacy breach on Ethereum. Uh, when someone pays another person, it's not just everything you've done, it's everything you're going to do. Because I've got your address now and yeah. I can see every, every future transaction True, that's going to yeah. come out of that wallet, which is, I always find interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, True, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let's, come, uh, let's have an example. So let's say I deposit money into Aztec and then I want to lend that money into Euler. Mm -hmm. I want to borrow, let's say, I lend USDC, I borrow... I know some some XYZ token. I put that into a staking contract, do a bunch of things. How does that work under the bonnet? From like, can you interact with all these different smart contracts at the same time? Uh, yeah, how, how does it get from A to Z, basically? It's just what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so that's quite a complicated flow, I guess. So, I mean, there's two ways to do that. So, you can either write uh, a bridge contract that does all of that in one go. Um, so you can kind of have a bridge contract. We call them recipes or zaps, uh, where you kind of go from USDC uh, to the staked like end uh, kind of token, and it would do all those 
all those steps in the bridge contract. Um, there's some benefits to doing that. Um, you kind of get to amortize a very large amount of L1 gas uh, with with users, um, but there's also a coordination issue because you have to find users who want to do the same thing. Um, the kind of way we're going about things at the moment is a much more kind of composable way where you would write a bridge contract for each part. Um, so let's say step one, lend uh, on uh, boiler and uh, get back, um, I guess it's e-tokens um, on, yeah. on Aztec. Um, then you can take those e-tokens and use them as collateral for borrowing, step two, and kind of you, you break it out. But each of those would need a bridge contract written with that functionality, um, and then people will be able to interact with it uh, through ZK Money initially, and then through the SDK. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, I suppose eventually it would be it could be one transaction in the end, right? Where you do because, like, yeah, um, it's not because we're sponsored by Oiler, but like we have a batch <laughs> we have a batch transaction feature, which is pretty neat. Like you yeah. can uh, lend, borrow, liquidate people all in one transaction instead of doing one by one. I guess that helps your helps to interact with Euler per se, but could that be something you could do as well on the Aztec side, where you just you are in Aztec, you do five things, mm -hmm. get, and you know uh, send that to L one as one thing, and then you know. yeah. So if you already have that contract written that kind of uh, does batch transactions, it'll be very easy to kind of uh, add like a bridge interface to it, and then you get that functionality on Aztec. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, it's just it's just solidity at the end of the day. So like all of the kind of zero knowledge cryptography has been hidden inside Aztec. And by the time we're kind of on L1, we're just, it's as if the roll-up contract is calling your kind of uh, batch contract on behalf of some users on Aztec. So mm -hmm. if that already exists, it would be quite simple. Um, the batch kind of size would just be dependent on the amount of uh, users who want to do that in a given time window. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. In terms of risks, I'm just wondering what happens. Let's say, um, I bring my money from Aztec to L1, and let's say, let's say Ethereum shuts down for some reason. Mm -hmm. What happens then? And another example: Aztec shuts down for whatever for a few hours. What happens to your funds then? Um, so the case of Ethereum shutting down. I don't think it's ever happened, so so I think we can yeah. we, we can uh, discount that one. So I mean, we, we pick Ethereum because it's um, uh, it's kind of yeah pretty battle tested. Um, so kind of the state of the world from uh, like an Ethereum perspective is uh, your funds are either inside Aztec uh, in the Aztec roll up contract, or in some cases they may be in a bridge contract because it's a lending or a borrowing bridge that needs to kind of have collateral. Um, so that's just the same as kind of uh, the first part of the question, I guess, is just the same as like what happens if you have funds in uh, Euler on L1 and Ethereum shuts down? Mm -hmm. Like the funds are just still there until it comes back up again uh, or if you have them in a wallet. If Aztec um, disappears, uh, at the moment we are the only roll-up node, um, but with the launch of Aztec Connect, um, we're kind of open sourcing the roll-up uh, provider software. Um, and we have this, what we call an escape window on layer one. So uh, we're kind of the authorized roll-up provider for eight out of every 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And there's two hours uh, out of every 10 where anyone can submit roll-up proofs. So if we disappear, someone can take the open source code, same code that we run, um, spin up a machine and kind of keep the network running. And over the year, we're working on kind of different decentralization kind of 
um, initiatives to test out how to kind of add more nodes in mm. um, and kind of remove that centralization risk. So you're not going to probably keep that 80% mix. It's just you're trying things out now to see Yeah, at the it moment scales. it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a little more efficient while we're upgrading stuff to kind of um, just be the sole provider. Um, but we're kind of making, I guess, giant leaps towards decentralization. Um, and I guess the minimum thing we, we felt users needed was uh, an option to kind of get out of the system should we leave. And that's kind of what the two hours yeah. is for. Um, so even if like you get shot down, there's 20% of nodes that have that information, they can... The information's all on L1. So like anyone can kind of take this code, spin up the node, it will sync and it will kind of uh, then start accepting transactions. Um, mm. And uh, users could use that to withdraw or they could keep running the network. Cool. Using that. It's not the ideal situation for kind of the long term, but... Um, Kind of the long-term state is like fully decentralized. Anyone runs a node. Um, there's kind of thousands of nodes like on Ethereum. So in terms of bridging contracts between Aztec and Layer 1 dApps, uh, how would that work? Does someone have to create it? Or like, uh, is, is that service in and of itself run by Aztec nodes? Or how decentralized is it? Yeah, it's a good question. So we have written a few bridge contracts ourselves. Um, but uh, kind of we started like thinking we would have to write uh, quite a few of them. Um, but quite quickly through our grants program, we've had about forty different applicants for most of the kind of major protocols uh, apply, and uh, it's a very kind of like decentral decentralized community first approach to writing these bridge contracts. Uh, they're quite simple to write. Um, simplest ones are kind of like ten lines of Solidity code. Um, it really depends kind of what the bridge is doing. I think some of the most complicated ones we've seen so far are about 500 lines of code. Um, they're still quite small contracts. Um, and the process is kind of applied to us for a grant. Um, we will kind of uh, make some kind of the team available to kind of help you write the bridge, um, give you some kind of pointers, and then any kind of uh, bridges that kind of seem like they're well-tested and something the community wants, we'll put through an audit. Um, uh, we have lined up kind of in February. Uh, you don't need to go through that process. It is permissionless. You can just deploy your bridge and register it on the rollout contract. Um, but in the short term, we're only going to kind of put audited bridges um, that we've kind of been through a little bit of a review of in ZK Money. Uh, but if you want to kind of run your bridge with the SDK, you can kind of do that. There's no, there's no kind of whitelist. It's completely permissionless. So the bridging contract lives on Aztec? No, it lives on L1. Oh, um, okay. So it's just an L1 contract, um, normal Solidity contract mm -hmm. that interfaces with our roll-up contract. Cool. Um, the execution environment is L1 and it's kind of a reason why I think it's been quite easy to get integrations here because a lot of protocols um, have a lot of moving pieces. So uh, let's say Element as a protocol. Um, they need Balancer, they need a few different protocols in place for their protocol to work. And uh, most L2s don't have an ecosystem in mm -hmm. place of contracts deployed to L2. And with the Aztec Connect model, um, the execution stays in L1, the liquidity stays in L1. It's just like the roll-up roll contract itself has in interacted with your protocol. Right. Um, so the bridge is just kind of a translation layer that says uh, on Uniswap, it's called a swap tokens on mm -hmm. you, on uh, Euler. It's called deposit or, mm -hmm. or something, but they're all effectively, you're taking some form of tokens and getting back another form of tokens. Right. Um, so the bridge interface is just a way of 
kind of standardizing that so the rollup can understand what tokens it's received and what tokens it's sent. Mm -hmm. And then the actual kind of uh, tokens are then dispersed back on Aztec to the mm -hmm. users who took part in, in the transaction. Mm -hmm. So the only thing happening on Aztec is kind of the dispersion and the original kind of spend transaction. Right. Might sound like a silly question, but you said it's permissionless in terms of deploying these bridging contracts. Uh, like on Euler, there was um, a thing we discussed the other day, actually a few weeks ago, that you can create permissionlessly lending markets on anything, right? To do that, all you need to do is a smart contract of the token, right? Problem is, you, you kind of do that through finding the name of it on the UI. Mm-hmm. But apparently you have lots of malicious tokens that have the same names but different smart contracts, you know? So in theory, you could be interacting with a fake Ethereum. Uh, on the UI, we obviously filter that, you know? But on the smart contract level, because you can permissionlessly have tokens, like it could be something that looks like Ethereum, but it's actually not. How do you... You said that there's some sort of a... Um, kind of a... You use your judgment to tell people what is a good bridging contract, what's not. But in theory, could anyone you could you just use permissionlessly any bridging contracts? Like who's like the authority in terms of deciding down the line what contracts good, what's not? I don't know if it's a silly question or like. No, I think it's a good question. <laughs> I think um, so. The authority on the network level, so Aztec Network, is is completely permissionless, and you can interact with any bridge contract through our SDK, um, and that's kind of. Uh, kind of one of the things we felt quite strongly about, and that's like the, the model we're going for in the long term. Uh, through ZK Money, which is kind of um, our product or showcase built on top of the SDK, uh, because we're attracting users' funds there, and we're the one like originating the transaction uh, well, through ZK Money in the browser, um, or the user's actually doing it. But um, because we're kind of making that bridge available, we will kind of only put like a short list of bridges there where we've checked okay. the tokens are what they say they are and the bridge is not malicious. Right, so it's a UI thing. Yeah. But in terms of permissionlessness, it's there. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. okay. Uh, actually, um, we talked about client node. Um, that, that reminds me, I wanted to ask. So I think a big point in, a, a big reason why Ethereum is decentralized as it is, is that there's different kind of software you could use to do what you wanted to do, unlike, unlike other blockchains where there's just one, right? Yeah. I suppose that decentralization factor works pretty well. Right? You can have different software doing the same job. But what about Aztec in terms of decentralization of software? Is that something you guys have planned or you think that's not necessary? Um, what do you think? Uh, it's a good question, actually. At the moment, there is one, one client implementation. Um, I think that uh, the beauty of a ZK Snark, though, is that um, it's the verifier that is kind of uh, kind of accepting the proof of transactions. Oh, so as long as the as long as you have a proof, it doesn't really matter how you generate it. Like as long as Ethereum is has decentralized yeah, yeah. software, like that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there is a liveness issue on Aztec, and I think it would be good to have multiple clients in the future, and that's. Once the network's fully permissionless, I think that would happen. The code's open source, but uh, I think the effects of it are slightly less on Aztec because we don't have consensus. Uh, we rely on sense. Ethereum for consensus. That so. makes sense, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, how about gas? Like when you bridge things, when you uh, interact on Aztec, how exactly is gas kind of spread around or like how do you decrease it versus other rollups, you know? Yeah. So, 
I think one thing that we decided early on was that um, we're going after a slightly different class of user to, to other roll-ups. Um, when you have privacy, uh, things are going to be more expensive. Like we're not going after kind of fraction of a cent transactions on day one. We think we can get there. Um, but we're kind of more focused on like 10 cent private transactions as, yeah. as a good near-term goal. And the reason for that is when you encrypt data, usually the encrypted data is larger than the unencrypted data. So there's just there's more data and uh, it's just slightly more expensive to process on Ethereum. Uh, in terms of gas, though, um, one of the great things about a roll-up uh, is the cost of verifying a roll-up proof is independent of the amount of computation inside the proof. So you can have gigantic roll-up proof um, and it will still cost a fixed amount of gas to verify on Ethereum. It's around 500,000 gas with our kind of latest research. Um, so if you have one transaction in that proof, it costs 500,000 gas to verify, plus any of the kind of data you need to broadcast on Ethereum. If you have 1,000 transactions in the proof, um, it's like 500 gas mm -hmm. uh, for a given kind of uh, transaction. So the verification is not um, the the kind of gas cost that really matters on, on Aztec. We've kind of amortized that to kind of pretty small levels. Um, the thing which is actually the, the driving or dominant factor in gas costs is the amount of data we broadcast with the transaction. So telling you that your balance has changed um, and kind of uh, giving you access to that, that data and telling you where it is. Uh, so it basically comes down to around 5,000 gas for a transaction, like base cost on Aztec. So that transaction is kind of the base cost for a send to another user on Aztec to their username or kind of a, a withdraw or, or a shield transaction. If you're doing a DeFi transaction um, using Aztec Connect, there is an additional gas cost, which is your share of the L1 transaction uh, to kind of do the DeFi interaction. Mm -hmm. So Uniswap, it's about 140,000 gas, 150,000 gas for uh, the L1 interaction. Uh, the good kind of mental model I have is that um, you kind of get privacy for free. Um, and at worst case, you pay 140,000 gas and get private Uniswap. Um, best case, there's lots of activity on Aztec. And there's 100 other people doing the transaction at the same time as you. Um, then you're going to pay like 1,400 gas plus 5,000 gas for the Aztec transaction. You'll pay 6,400 gas for a Uniswap transaction. Mm. Um, so there's kind of two like uh, two parts like uh, contributing to the overall gas cost that the user pays. Um, one part is relatively fixed from the cost of privacy. And then one part's a bit more variable depending on how many people are in your batch for um, kind of the L1 DeFi. And we're focusing at, at the start on kind of use cases where it's easier to build a bit of a network effect, create, create larger batches. So kind of low latency, like yield, lending, borrowing, where kind of you can batch transactions over an hour maybe mm. um, compared to trading. And as we speed up the roll-up um, and we get more and more usage, um, we'll start to kind of uh, focus more on the trading use cases where you need kind of more users in a much uh, more frequent time span. So at the moment, the batch is you know, um, sent over every, every hour or so? Uh, with the current kind of Aztec 2, uh, which is just payments, uh, we backstop... Uh, at about six hours, um, mm. but it, the system's a bit less performant. Batches are max 112 transactions, um, and the rollup will either go when it's full, which is 112 transactions, or six hours. 
with Aztec Connect kind of launching in the next couple of weeks, we will be increasing the size of the roll-up to around 896 transactions mm-hmm. per roll-up. Um, and we'll be kind of moving up the kind of backstop time to kind of roughly every two hours. Okay. Um, and I think that's good enough for most kind of yield use cases. Um, uh, but likely what happened with the current system is we kind of reach a full roll-up and roll-up's kind of going uh, on average much quicker than mm-hmm. every two hours. So, um, yeah, the goal is to get to kind of uh, Aztec blocks going every like one to five minutes um, with kind of lots and lots of transactions in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since you just mentioned roll-ups, um, the roll-up space is quite interesting. So when you look at roll-ups nowadays, they seem like the place where you do everything like Arbitrum, Optimism, all these, uh, all these roll-up solutions. Well, that's great. I think one th- problem that it creates a bit is that, uh, so for instance, we're a lending protocol, right? And our oracles come from Uniswap TWAPs on the mainnet. Now we could take that pricing to a roll-up if things are going on in the roll-up. Uh, that centralizes the system a bit. You have to kind of uh, introduce a bunch of changes to that. And also... It would be kind of ideal if we had faster transactions, but everything happens on the mainnet. Like it, it just would be ideal because otherwise, as I, not only do you have to move the T-ups there, but also you rely on liquidity in that rollup being good. Otherwise, you have to kind of bridge in between rollups on mainnet. So if I'm a liquidator and somebody borrowed too much on optimism uh, versus their Ethereum on optimism, I have to rely on the pool within optimism to be liquid enough for me to kind of liquidate that user otherwise I have to go bridge it to mainnet and do all that stuff so so rollups seem to create fragmentation of liquidity some solutions are uh, let's create some sort of a protocol that kind of uh, I don't know kind of combines all these rollups somehow and creates one efficient pricing uh, kind of a solution there that's one solution but what do you think about this space in terms of fragmentation of liquidity? Like how does Aztec intend to build dApps on top of it? Or like that's not exactly the use case. What do you think? Yeah, so in our long-term plan, um, we do intend to build some dApps, but it's not uh, the same approach as other L2s. So uh, Aztec's focus from day one is on privacy and kind of scaling privacy. And that's the purpose of our L2 is to scale the cost of a private transaction, not just replicate Ethereum um, kind of in a different execution environment. There will be dApps on Aztec um, in the future. And we have a, a smart contract language um, that we're building called Noir. Uh, it has one major difference though, which is the language has like private primitives. So you can have private logic and private um, like state variables. Um, so we imagine that the dApps or kind of applications you'll build on Aztec will be applications where you need privacy um, as part of kind of the lending market. Um, there'll be some parts which are private and there'll be some parts where the liquidity is likely on L1 still. Um, so it's kind of a bit of both. Like The ownership could be on, on Aztec um, and then maybe complicated fund structures that are needed to kind of define ownership and kind of uh, certain thresholds. But the protocol itself, sometimes it's better just to have uh, the complicated protocol logic on, on L1. Um, so... That's kind of um, Aztec's vision for like where dApps live in in the future. Um, but in terms of fragmentation of liquidity, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think for for a lot of these protocols, um, it's not just the liquidity; it's the kind of other protocols that are sit around your protocol. Like if if you have a curve pool for some of the assets that your protocol kind of generates, and like 
there's not curve uh, on um, kind of the roll-up you pick yet or curve's not liquid there. Um, you kind of, you have this like multi-dimensional kind of like network effect you need to kind of recreate on every roll-up system. Yeah. And it's taken Ethereum many years to do that. Um, so yeah, it's, I think fragmentation is not good for the ecosystem. Um, and that's why we took the deliberate decision with Aztec Connect to interact with L1 and try and be a bit more modular and kind of add functionality to Ethereum rather than kind of suck liquidity out of it. Um, so I think I think that's a great point. I mean, the other issue I think with roll-ups, and, and sorry for going on a, uh, oh, sorry, the, the other issue uh, with kind of some of the uh, L2s which are taking uh, liquidity from Ethereum and have their own execution environments. Um, and sorry for going on a bit of a rant here, but... Uh, it is uh, the is a liveness guarantee, and especially for like lending markets. So, let's say that uh, as you said, uh, mainnet is your kind of price feed, um, and the L two sequencer goes down. Uh, so, what happens in that scenario? Like, it goes down for four hours, and um, you get now some pretty major price action in in, in those four hours. So, ETH goes down twenty percent. So there's been a load of users who uh, have Euler on the L2 trying to send transactions to the sequencer. Um, there's a load of kind of liquidators trying to send transactions to the sequencer to liquidate transactions. And so let's say we've got 5,000 transactions waiting for the sequencer when it comes back online. It can come back online and say, hmm, which order should I execute these in? Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of has complete free reign over like what actually happens because... Sorry, it has complete free reign over what actually happens because uh, unless it's coded into the kind of protocol of the L2, um, it can just pick which transactions go in the next block. Uh, And the price on mainnet uh, is 20% below the price on uh, the L2. Um, So uh, kind of a lot of money can be made or lost in that kind of first block that goes back onto the L2. So there's kind of this liveness guarantee um, that I don't think a lot of people really understand um, and have like modeled out, um, which I think is a big risk to some of the kind of protocols that rely on oracles um, for their kind of stability. Um, and as I said previously, I don't think Ethereum's gone down. So um, no. it's something we all kind of rely on for decentralized finance. And adding this as like a potential option for an L2 to go down is is quite scary for some of these DeFi protocols. And if you can trust that with the Aztec approach with kind of L1 liquidity and L1 execution, if Aztec goes down, Euler on L1 is fine. It just keeps going on. Like the price is still coming in from kind of the Uniswap, uh, TWAP uh, Oracle. Um, if there's price action, uh, the worst case scenario is that users on Aztec may get liquidated because they can't submit transactions um, to kind of I guess, save their underwater position mm-hmm. um, because Aztec's down. But the whole protocol hasn't gone down. Like the whole kind of L1 protocol yeah. has gone down. And we have like a, a backup mechanism whereby uh, we're encouraging developers of bridge contracts um, to build in functionality where someone can save um, a kind of underwater position if Aztec does go down. But it, it shouldn't go down because we're being quite decentralized on how we think about uh, roll-up providers. But uh, just the... Uh, conceptually the difference be- between the two scenarios where liquidity is on L1 and liquidity is on the L2 yeah. but both L2s go down so obviously 
well, let's say it doesn't go down. So the benefit is obvious because your liquidity comes from a more liquid L1. So that's yep. good. The TWAP, the Oracle, is actually L1 Oracle. So that's better. Uh, if both of them go down, though, I don't quite see how different the effect is, though. Like, how is it different if both of them are, are down? Like, the users still get liquidated, don't they? Like, in the same way, they can't put transactions through. Or am I missing something? So your protocol, uh, so this is not from a user standpoint, from a protocol uh, like Euler, like the, the rest of, because Ethereum's not gone down, right. all users who haven't decided to use uh, Aztec, their positions are still fine. Like, Euler's responded to kind of uh, the system as is. Whereas on um, on another L2, like that whole instance of Euler has gone down. And you could argue like they're kind of the same because if there's the same users on on both, like there's a kind of, uh, a lot of users are going to have lost some funds um, but in that liquidation scenario. But but I think the, the point is that it's a lot easier to kind of um, uh, enable uh, the users on Aztec to kind of, save their position because there is a now one contract that they can always interact with yeah. um like the effect of Aztec going down is 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 not as grave as um a kind of uh l2 going down it definitely makes sense because yeah because Euler survives on l1 yeah. whatever happens worst case you submit that transaction offsetting transaction or like the transaction yeah. on l1 directly you have to lose a bit of privacy but maybe there's a way around it whereas if it's on l2 only like some of the protocols I built on L2 alone, like yeah, they're just gone you know, for some yeah. time. Makes sense. Yeah, and and I think like um, in our case, like you, like the worst case scenario at launch for Aztec is obviously you you wait till the two hour window where you can submit a proof is and like Aztec you you run the, the code yourself to save your position because uh, it's running on L1 and so uh, that's not ideal in, in the early days and that's why we're working on kind of. Uh, increasing uh, the decentralization of the network. So um, those users have even less risk. But uh, I think it's been a key kind of, I guess, driver for uh, protocol integrations that we deal with our one because you don't have to worry about uh, that. It's only, the, it's only the users who have to worry about those risks, not the whole protocol. Um, oh, super cool, actually, yeah. Um funny question but could you do like a roll-up on the roll-up like could you do Aztec on Arbitrum or something like that like <laughs> yeah it's a it's something we're considering um so Aztec can run on any pretty much any um definitely any EVM compatible chain and uh also any chain that has kind of true and complete smart contracts mm-hmm. um support kind of elliptic curve cryptography we're considering um uh becoming an L3 I guess um <laughs> Uh, it's a, yeah, it's it's a narrative that we may we may push uh, later this year. Um, the way we're kind of viewing it at the moment is um, we need, as I said earlier, financial activity to kind of really start in those um, kind of L twos before we think about deploying there. Uh, Polygon could be a good first candidate. It's not it's not a roll up, but it's like mm-hmm. a it's a side chain or eventually maybe its own blockchain. Um, that uh, uh, kind of could benefit from the privacy benefits of Aztec and now has a pretty large amount of financial activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something we may consider later this year. Do you know the senator, there was a hearing and the senator was asking a kind of kind of ridiculous question to tech guys. He was like, if I had my iPhone here, then where am I? Stuff like that. So that's going to be me now. Um, <laughs> like if I am on Aztec 
and I want to use the liquidity on level one, but all the borrowing, lending, like let's say I want to put a short position on. Mm-hmm. I don't want that, like, I don't want every of that transaction to go for L1 first. I want to kind of use the liquidity, but um, keep everything else on Aztec. Is that something that's possible or that's like ridiculous? No, I, mean, I think that's... Yeah. So, so just if I understand you correctly, you've got uh, die on I told Aztec. you I'm going to sound like that guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let me try. Let me try and work work out if if you are that guy. <laughs> um, so you, Is Google in my iPhone? <laughs> what is Dai? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you've got Dai on on Aztec already, um, yeah. and you want to kind of use your Dai to um, open up a let, short position on ETH, I think I have it. I have it. So let's say I have Dai, as you said, on Aztec, and instead of taking that Dai, creating uh, like Aztec die putting on or ZK die yeah putting onto Euler and lending and then borrowing and taking like uh, Ethereum back to that I could just straight away not convert ZK die into E die on Ethereum but just ZK die uh, borrow against ZK die straight away ZK Ethereum and but I use the liquidity from Euler on L1 is that yeah, so is, that, oh, is that my iPhone in my Google? Like, <laughs> kind of, yeah. So I mean, that, that's the effect, like what you see when you when you, I guess, type in your Google. Um, <laughs> but what's happening under the hood is um, your zk die is just die owned by the Aztec rollup contract. Mm-hmm. So when you spend zk die, you're just telling the rollup contract that you want to kind of. You, you, we call it zk die because it's shielded. We don't know who owns it until you mm-hmm. say you want to spend it. Um, and even then, uh, the the contract has a proof that someone owns it and wants to spend it. So you take your ZK die and you tell the roll up contract, I want to take, I've got the ZK die here, which is a claim on the die mm-hmm. that you have. Uh, and I want you to take that and I'll send it to Euler. Um, and uh, I'm going to get back some ZK ETH, let's say. Um, and... Uh, uh, well, I'm going to get back some ETH, sorry. So let's back up, start again, because it's getting confusing. <laughs> so you start with ZK die, uh, which is just a claim on the die that the rollout contract has. Um, so you submit your transaction on on, on Aztec or ZK money, um, and uh, your transaction says, okay, I want to take my uh, ZK die and interact with this L1 bridge contract. Um, so when that transaction is validated on 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 mainnet as part of a roll-up block, the roll-up sees that and it's like, okay, uh, I've got some die, um, which the user has a ZK die. I'm gonna take my die, send it to the bridge contract, and I'm expecting back some ETH. Um, so uh, the roll-up contract gets back some ETH. It records this, uh, and then there's some work that happens, kind of uh, completely trustlessly, to disperse that ETH to all the holders who basically put in ZK die uh, in the original die transaction. So you end up with ZK ETH. The roll-up contract has just sent some DAI and got some ETH back. Mm-hmm. And we call it ZK DAI and ZK ETH because you have a claim on it on Aztec. Right, got it. Um, so yeah, kind of kind of uh, how you imagine, but under the hood, DAI and ETH are moving on L1. Right. And the ZK version of it is just your shielded version of it on, on the L2. And final question about this particular example is uh, the Oracle, the pricing of that DAI and ETH, 
that's derived from L1 to confirm, right? Yeah. So because it's interacting on basis level with Euler on L1. So yeah, it's just sense. it's just L1. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So my Google is in my iPhone. <laughs> then all right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> okay. Um, how do you think the roll-up space will evolve in 2022 and beyond? Like, what do you think is like the biggest trend? Apart from everything becoming more like Aztec. <laughs> uh, it's a good question. So I think it's going to be a pretty exciting year. There's a lot of um, projects that are kind of moving out of like testnet or, or testing phase um, in kind of the first couple of quarters of this year. Some of them have been live since last year, but it's going to be interesting to see um, kind of if they live up to expectations, if they over-promised, under-promised, um, and, and kind of where, where things shake out. Um, like functionality, composability. So I'm super excited to kind of see all the stuff that like everyone's who's working in the space is working on a really smart team and like they're all like great people. So it's really, really exciting to kind of see those projects become live. And I'm just excited to see kind of what becomes possible. Um, in terms of like how I see the space kind of uh, shaking out, I think there's going to be some consolidation because of the, the fragmentation we talked about. Um and we kind of just think about it as like if the kind of major source of transactions becomes a roll-up other than Ethereum, we'll be an L3. Um, mm -hmm. If not, we're happy kind of being an L2. If people are happy using Aztec and the bridge functionality to get these 10 to 30 times gas savings and privacy. So it just really depends on kind of what the users want at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of protocols are pushing what they think the users want, but now we're going to be in a point in time where we can just see through adoption um, mm -hmm. so I think that's going to be pretty exciting cool somebody asked from the audience when token when Lambo I guess we're going to speak we're going to skip that one but yeah thanks a lot for coming on Joe I think it was a really cool like as technical as I can handle talk pretty much um, thanks a lot for that cool uh, there's going to be an event so we're both going to Denver I assume on the 19th of February, there's going to be a side event for friends and family of Aztec, uh, Euler, and Notional. So if you're one of those people, please <laughs> make sure to come along. Uh, how can we find out more about Aztec? Uh, it's a good, good question. So we've got some uh, developer docs. Um, if you just search for Aztec Connect uh, Starter Kit, uh, it should come up. Um, or you can kind of join us in our Discord. Um, I think the, the link will probably be in the, the description at some point of this podcast. Or, or you can ping me on Twitter um, it's J-A-O-S-E-F uh, and I'll send you any docs you need um, and developers.aztec.network is probably the best place for developers to kind of get started uh, and yeah we'll we'll see you in East Denver um, we'll be sponsoring the hackathon um, there'll be $15,000 ZK die bounties for the best bridge contracts so uh, if you've got some ideas of kind of how to add some privacy mechanics or, or scaling to your favorite uh, L1 protocols. Um, register for the hackathon as a virtual attendance or in, in person and uh, come and say hi uh, at the drinks event as well. After the, after this podcast, I got various. I, I can do it now, basically. I should register. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, man, thanks a lot. I'll see you soon then. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And uh, thanks for having me. Cheers.